All right, we're all here. Hey guys, welcome to Pottsylvania. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is Patrick Wilson. I'm here with my co-hosts Tyler Noon and John Stump. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started this week talking about Jim and Andy. So Tyler, you want to kick us off? Uh, sure thing. Here we go. Um, so Jim and Andy uh, is a documentary. Uh, it's exploration of identity, which uh, balances the parallels between two comedians, uh, Jim Carrey uh, and Andy Kaufman. Jim Carrey, most people uh, probably know about. He's done a lot of really big films throughout the year. Bruce Almighty, The Mask, Ace Ventura, even some dramatic turns in The Truman Show uh, and a movie called Man on the Moon. Well, um, Jim and Andy is really a documentary that focuses around the filming of Man on the Moon. It was uh, a documentary crew that followed Jim Carrey around as he portrayed the character of Andy Kaufman. So who is Andy Kaufman? Um, well, he really is an interesting figure. Uh, he was a comedian and actor, most, um, mostly known for his performance art later in his career and also a very successful earlier career. Um, later in his career, he would uh, kind of act absurdly in public and he, through these acts blur the lines between what was real and what was an act. Um, uh, as a contrast, early in his career, he was kind of more of a conventional comedian. He did stand up. Uh, he worked on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he was a popular character uh, in a sitcom uh, called Taxi, which uh, co-starred Danny DeVito. Um, but later on, he would kind of do these performance art pieces. Um, he did a number of different things. Um, one thing that he was very famous for was this alter ego uh, named Tony Clifton. Now, I kind of struggle to describe who Tony Clifton is. Um, John, can you kind of just give a little bit of a kind of describe who this character that Andy Kaufman would be? Uh, well, Tony Clifton is uh, he's a lounge singer like you'd see in Vegas. Um, but he is also an alter ego of uh, Andy Kaufman, um, who would kind of show up at places that uh, Andy was at. He would open for him on stand-up tours. Um, and in his contract, when he got signed by ABC to be in Taxi, who uh, basically bought another one of Andy Kaufman's characters, which was the uh, uh, the foreign guy, as it is known, um, to be on Taxi. He wrote into his contract that uh, he would be on 18 episodes and Tony Clifton would be on four. So it was kind of just this another, uh, you know, more the performance art aspect of Kaufman as opposed to like his actor stand up kind of stuff. Um, to just make up this guy and then walk around as him and say it wasn't really Andy Kaufman. And so then, people like, go, go to weird lengths to prove that it wasn't him, like having um, his uh, friend and writing partner, uh, Bob Zmuda, uh, who's played by Paul Giamatti in the uh, Jim Carrey uh, Man on the Moon movie. Um, dress up as him and then uh, Andy would be like in the crowd and be like see it isn't me um, and for extended periods of time while filming Man on the Moon uh, Jim Carrey stays in character as Tony Clifton so it's kind of Jim is Andy is Tony thing 
And I actually think that's like the most interesting part of the whole overboard method acting thing that Jim Carrey does. Um, well, uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves here because I, I kind of want to describe what um, uh, other characters, um, uh, other acts that uh, Andy Kaufman does. So, <clears throat> Tyler, if I could just chime in really quick too, and following up on, on what John said, I think Tony Clifton not only was an alter ego for Andy Kaufman, but I think in a brilliant move, Andy Kaufman was able to use Tony Clifton to help propel himself to fame, um, you know, pitting the two almost against each other and creating this kind of, um, you know, public fight, if you will, between the two, which helped to, to bring him into the limelight, you know, create this publicity around him. But uh, there was a, a, a point that um, just kind of piggyback on that, that, uh, uh, you know, it's written into Andy's contract that uh, on Taxi that Tony Clifton has to be on four episodes. Well, then he shows up as Tony Clifton and causes this huge scene and then gets Tony Clifton fired and uh, local newspapers write stories about it. So Kaufman was definitely aware of what he was doing and using Tony, Jim, uh, Andy using Tony and Tony using Andy to kind of propel each other. Okay, well, uh, we'll get into uh, some uh, more about Tony definitely later. Um, but as far as other characters that were things that Andy did, Andy Kaufman, um, one thing that he did was he became a pro wrestler. Now, not as an alter ego, as Andy Kaufman, he was a professional wrestler, but he would only wrestle other women and he called himself the intergender uh, champion of the world. Um, and this obviously perturbed a lot of people. He would go on and, um, and say a lot of misogynistic things and stuff like that. Um, another thing that he would do is he would go on stage at clubs and purposely bomb. So he would do really terribly just because um, he, he thought that that was a, a type of comedy that was, uh, unique. There was something funny in that. Um, so uh, this, among many other things, we'll probably get into later, it made him very unpopular with many Americans, but with some comedians, they really revered him. Um, but his acts were so um, kind of deceiving that later on in his career, he was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer, and many people didn't believe him. In fact, when he died, uh, many people didn't believe it. And still to this day, there are conspiracy theories that he never died and is alive today. <laughs> so that's kind of my bit on um, Andy Kaufman. Uh, before we get into the documentary, guys, I want to know, uh, is Andy Kaufman still alive? I would, uh, like, to, I would like to think so, um, you know, just because I tend to lean towards more uh, of believing conspiracy theories and things like that. But John and I were talking about it earlier in the week, and I would think that he would make an appearance by now if he were, you know, it's almost uh, 40 years since he's passed away. <laughs> so if he is still alive, God damn, is he dedicated to, uh, <laughs> to this little bit. John? Right. I, I would uh, agree to that. I I would love for Andy Kaufman to not be dead. Um, but I think at this point, like, 
there's even too long to wait for a punchline, even for Andy Kaufman. And I feel like he would have done it by now, resurrected himself in some strange fashion in some strange place. All right. Well, I would, I would probably agree that he's, he's dead, but um, it still would be um, real dedication if he pretended to be dead for so long. Um, well, anyways, let's get into this uh, movie, Man on the Moon. Uh, this was a movie that kind of, it had a lot of weight to it um, artistically. It was directed by Milos Forman, and he is a legend. He directed One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus, uh, The People versus Larry Flint. These are movies that were very critically successful and made a lot of money, won a lot of Oscars, things like that. And Jim Carrey was uh, cast as Andy Kaufman. Now, this is 1999, so it's kind of important to know, like, the status that Jim Carrey was, because... At this time of his life, he had an incredible five-year stretch. He, he, his break came in 1994, and within that five-year span, and this isn't even all the movies they did in it, but he did Ace Ventura 1 and 2, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Liar Liar, yeah. Show. Like, he was huge. Okay? And the, the Mask, Ace Ventura, and um, Dumb and Dumber all in the same year. Yeah. And then of blockbuster films, I mean, it brought in almost unprecedented amounts of money for. And then, and then the next year he does Batman, and he's the Riddler. Mm-hmm. So he's on. He kind of goes from, like, you know, he's from Canada. He moves from Canada to Hollywood, and he's you know he's on uh, the Tonight Show in like '82. And then he kind of like bounces around, he's doing stand up and he's doing well in that, but he wants to be in movies. And in 1990 to 94, I believe it is, he's on In Living Color, which is a very famous sketch show, kind of a SNL uh, competitor type thing. And huh. then after that, he gets these three huge movies, like probably three, three of the biggest comedies of the 90s and maybe all time and then is in a fucking Batman movie like crazy time yeah and even uh, dramatically the year before uh, Man on the Moon he gets a Golden Globe for the Truman Show which actually has a lot of influence on his mind state at the time because he's so huge and um, you know it's when you're that famous it really can affect your private life so kind of gearing towards my point here is that he was so successful and he was trying to be successful. However, he was empty inside. He reached his ultimate goal of success and it didn't really make him feel better. And he was not in a good place. And I think this can be exemplified to show his level of success. There's a kind of this cool anecdote uh, kind of referred to as the $10 million check. Um, Pat, can you go into the $10 million check? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Early on in his career, Jim Carrey um, did a couple interviews. And one, I think in 1984, when he was very young, he talked about just how cool it would be, um, you know, to rise to fame and to to be so popular and such a celebrity that he wouldn't be able to walk outside without being noticed. Um, so for for all of his career, at least early on, he had this dream of being super successful as most people do as being immediately recognizable 
And one of the goals that he set for himself was he wrote a $10 million check to himself for acting services rendered. And he gave himself, I believe it was five years to achieve that goal. Um, and, and he did. And he, he not only achieved it, but passed it. So he's a dedicated guy. And uh, it just it gives you an example of the drop mindset that Kerry had going into his acting career. I mean, that is one hell of a lofty goal to set for for yourself. I mean, $10 million is not – that's no chump change. And uh, his father was kind of a, a failed entertainer that compromised on his dreams and never made it. Uh, what did uh, Jim Carrey do with his $10 million check? Did he ever cash it? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. Oh, I know. I know. We had the anecdote, uh, you know, about the ten million dollar check. You know what? I, I, if I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he didn't cash it. I believe he put that check in his father's casket when he was buried. Yes. But- um, so I don't know. I, I thought that was kind of a, a cool and meaningful little tidbit. But yeah, thanks, Pat. Uh, yeah, so the ten million dollar check story was really huge at the time too, and just kind of exemplified that how quick he was to success and um, how driven that he was. As you said, he talked about it all on Oprah and all this. But um, so, however, he still had this emptiness inside, and he didn't really know where to go from here. Um, and he basically kind of breaks down his comedic strategy as becoming a character that makes his audience carefree so in doing this he's not jim he's becoming this other character that he just kind of went into and couldn't control he described it as this jekyll and hyde however the hyde is a uh, a happy hyde so perhaps he was only happy as these other characters and not as jim and that's the theory i can get into a little bit later but fast forward to he is cast as andy kaufman and when he's cast as Andy Kaufman, he's not in a good place, and he decides to do a method performance. Now, Pat, I, I'm going to ask you a little bit about method acting a, a little bit later, but um, um, when he is cast as this, I guess we could go into the, the beach part, but actually, no, uh, Pat, describe a little bit about what uh, method acting is, because uh, he wanted to do a method performance of Andy Kaufman. So what is method acting? Um, so I want to preface this by saying I am by no means an expert on uh, the performance arts or method acting, but I've done a little bit of research and uh, historically it was started um, actually by uh, this Russian um, Stanislavski. Yeah. And I apologize if I'm butchering that name, my Russian's a little rusty, um, but it was popularized in the U S Uh, really by three people uh, at the group theater. They're Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and Sanford Meisner. And what it is at its core is uh, drawing on effective memory uh, is, is a term you hear a lot with method acting. And it's using personal experiences Um, things that have actually happened to you to elicit the emotions and the response needed to perform as a character on stage. So, you know, things like the death of a loved one, um, recalling in vivid detail 
that actual experience, reliving it over and over again so that as the character you're trying to portray, you can sincerely produce the emotions of sorrow and mourning and woe um, or, you know, conversely, the birth of a child to um, sincerely portray that elation and uh, to give the audience a more vivid and real experience. But it can go even further um, to, you know, both on and off stage. But that that at its base is what method acting is. So can you name some uh, current examples of actors who really because there's different levels of method acting, but the, the famous actors nowadays that are known for going into their characters, even off screen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm just like Jim Carrey, you know, we're talking about him as the primary focus today. Um, he is a, a shining example of method acting, but uh, some of the others are uh, Christian Bale, Daniel Day-Lewis, Robert De Niro, um, very famously Heath Ledger, especially as the Joker in um, Nolan's um, Batman, um, Joaquin Phoenix, Marlon Brando going back, uh, Marilyn Monroe, all uh, – employed method acting in in one way or another to develop um and perform as the characters that they were so um john i'm gonna bring you in here what would you say the difference between uh jim carrey's portrayal as andy kaufman is compared to other method actors there he jim carrey's just not he's not letting up at any point as far as he's he's more he's living the characters as opposed to drawing on things to keep them in that an actor in that mode to portray that person of saying you know i'm going to use these experiences in this accent or whatever to kind of go in a direction and always be going in that direction where Jim like really embodied that and was 24 seven Andy Kaufman. So like Daniel Day Lewis, when he's Lincoln, all right, he's talking as Lincoln. He's walking around the same style that Lincoln walks. But if I asked Daniel Day Lewis, I'm going to say, are you Daniel Day Lewis? Would he say yes? I would say yes. Yes. Correct. But I asked Jim Carrey while he was portraying Andy Kaufman. I said, hi, are you Jim Carrey? What would he say? He'd say, no, I'm Andy Kaufman. So um, I just wanted to make that distinction because it's going to make this stuff more clear later on. So when uh, Andy, when Jim was cast as Andy Kaufman, he said that he was sitting on the beach and he was just wondering what Andy Kaufman was doing. And he said, well, logically, he thought that he'd be communicating telepathically. And when he thought that, he saw 30 dolphins swim to the surface out over the water. And then he thought Andy Kaufman literally told to him, he thought he said, um, I'll be doing my movie. Sit down. I'll be doing my movie. And then Jim says, what happened afterwards was out of my control. So, um, basically, it's almost as if the, the, the spirit of Andy Kaufman just embodied Jim Carrey and he, he truly became him. 
You know, it, like you said, he he answered only to Andy or Tony Clifton. If he was, he maintained that persona and that character on and off stage to its entirety. Um, you know, his his mannerisms, the same pranks he would perform. Um, you know, he truly believed at that time that he was Andy and uh, even family members of Andy Kaufman, other actors said that it was absolutely uncanny to be around him at the time. It, it was as if Andy was back. So I think that's just really cool. It's it's going above and beyond method acting to to truly living as another person, which, as we'll talk about later, um, produces some great cinematic experience but sometimes at a cost. So I'm going to go a little bit editorial in this. Um, and I think it's very admirable that um, Andy Kaufman was doing this. Sorry, that Jimmy was, I'm mixing it up already. Um, I think it's admirable <laughs> that Jim Carrey was so dedicated. Um, but I actually think that his method acting was pretty morally gray. Um, and, and, and I'll get into it. But first, I just want to say that this documentary of Jim Carrey portraying Andy Kaufman was um, actually banned by Universal Studios. Universal Studios was producing The Man on the Moon and they would not, they did not want to see um, Andy, sorry, that Jim Carrey's portrayal off camera. They didn't want this documentary out because as he said, they don't want people to think that Jim Carrey was an asshole. This is how crazy Jim Carrey's antics were off screen that the movie studio actually said all filming on our property is is ours to own and you can't release it because we think that your antics are so crazy that if people saw it they wouldn't like you anymore they wouldn't see this movie so (laughs) um so let me get into some examples of i'm just going to fire off some examples he did in his method of acting that might be taking it too far And, and i'll go down the line here um well, he wouldn't take direction from Milos Foreman as Jim. So if he said Jim, he goes, who's Jim? Why are you saying this? I just don't feel like you're talking to me. You're talking about people who aren't even here. Uh, he would kick up a huge fuss about stuntmen because he was trying to live the actual scene. And so having another person he really was against, and that was a problem later on. Um, uh, Andy Kaufman had a, another pro wrestler uh, that he was friends with off screen like not when he was in his act called jerry lawler and they would plan these acts to do and they would get in these fights in public like most famously on letterman however when they weren't in public doing an act uh andy kaufman and jerry lawler were friends in fact uh, andy kaufman was very polite to him called him sir things like that however jim was not very nice to jerry lawler jerry lawler was cast in the part as jerry lawler in man on the moon However, Jim Carrey was tremendously mean to him and actually was assaulting him a few <laughs> times, throwing water, spitting at his face. In the, in the wrestling scene, he pushed him out of the ring, like not planned, and it kind of like hurt his back a little bit. He was very upset. And culminating into what I think it really affected me the most, mm-hmm. I, I was really kind of, uh, I, I felt was messed up, was he would speak, Jim Carrey, would speak to Andy Kaufman's family members who would be on set as Andy. In fact, multiple times made them broke down emotionally. And one time he actually um, interacted with Andy's 
uh, bastard child. So Andy Kaufman had a daughter out of wedlock. So, <laughs> that was tacky. Yeah, this is crazy. So Andy Kaufman had a daughter out of wedlock that he didn't claim, and she never met him. Okay, so that's already a very complicated relationship. So Andy Kaufman's bastard daughter came to set, and Jim Carrey as Andy went into a room with her one-on-one. They didn't record it, but he described it. They said they talked which, by the way, Jim Carrey saying Andy and this daughter talked, describing himself. But he said they talked, they cried, they talked about memories, they talked about where, you know, all, all where like Andy is in spirit and all this. But I think that's really messed up. Can, um, can I ra- can I raise a point to that? Yeah, go ahead. I I totally get what you're saying, and I totally understand what you're saying, but. My opinion on the whole thing is, did Jim Carrey take it too far? Yes. He kind of, like, was using his status and, like, oh, I'm just method ad. Like, it's not me, it's Andy, to be an asshole and maybe work through some of his own stuff. But I think that he he thought that to genuinely portray Andy Kaufman would be kind of like if Andy Kaufman thought that if you asked him what would you want somebody to do when they made a movie about your life he would kind of come up with something like this a person that's going to totally embody me and take the joke way too far and never break because that's kind of what Andy's deal was Um, he people would say, well, you're Tony Clifton. And he would say, I'm not Tony Clifton. And then when he was Tony Clifton, people would say, hey, you're Andy. He'd go, I'm not Andy. What the fuck are you talking about? So I think that Jim thought it was kind of his interpretation of Andy Kaufman's interpretation of what a movie about him would be. So that leads in. I totally. Him sorry, being no. that. Him, him being that. And I think that, yes, it's, it is kind of wrong, just as like a broad term, to, you know, portray Andy Kaufman and just, uh, not just impersonate him, say you're him and talk to his family and especially his daughter that he never met. But I also think that for someone that has lost a close family member or someone that finds out they have a dad, finds out they have a famous dad, and then be able to meet probably the next best thing as you're ever going to get to (laughs) them gives you some sort of closure or it can. I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm not saying it's hundred percent right that he did this, but I'm sure you guys both have family members or people in your lives that you were close to that uh, you're not around anymore. And if you could get something that was a little bit like it just for a little bit of time, that would make you feel better. And isn't that kind of an actor, a comedian, their job to make you kind of like forget about your problems and just be entertained kind of thing. I, yeah, I agree. I, I, I do think that 
it was almost a good thing. I do think it's morally gray, Tyler. I, I agree there. There is a whole level of, of, of fucked up that comes with truly, truly pretending. And, and I don't even know that, that Kerry was pretending at this point. I mean, he, he believed that Kaufman was communicating with him telepathically and that he was embodying that spirit, but talking to your, the family as if he's him and, and to portray him so accurately would just, at least for me, it would fuck with my emotions to a level that I can't even fathom at this point. But I also see John's point. I think it may have given them an opportunity to talk with that loved one that they they lost, or maybe they didn't lose, and maybe he's just sitting in Burma, which we now know is Myanmar. But, you know, it, it gives them this chance to, to talk with this person again, it, at least conceptually right so um i okay i take your opinions i'm gonna just give my opposite opinion real quick and then i'm gonna move on um so what i think becomes clear in this documentary is that jim wasn't actually playing andy he was playing his own conception of andy and more importantly who he wanted andy to be um and I just think that he had this, he kind of was working through some of his own stuff. And I, I witnessed him kind of break the Andy character. And specifically there's one point where um, there is a character and I won't get into it too much, but he's portraying Andy Kaufman's father and he comes into the trailer as Andy Kaufman's father and has an argument with Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman. So they argue together as father and son. And Andy Kaufman's real sister is there and starts crying. And she says that it looks so real. And at this time, Jim, who is an upset Andy Kaufman, having just argued, starts grinning. He couldn't conceal his joy at his success at portraying the character. And I just, I just didn't have a real good um, feeling about it. But that being said, I think you guys bought a lot of good points up as to what does it mean to be an actor and the good things that could come out of the interaction. That's a really interesting point, Tyler. I, I don't want to dwell on it because we do have to move on, but your point about Jim Carrey portraying Andy Kaufman as he thought Andy Kaufman was or is, is really interesting because um, I think Jim idolized him and, and wanted to emulate him in his career. He saw Andy Kaufman as this role model. So he wanted to be the Andy Kaufman that he knew and maybe not necessarily the Andy Kaufman that was or is. So um, just to get into some um, other things that resulted from his uh, crazy performance, at one point, uh, the director, uh, Milos Foreman, calls um, Jim. And so he picks up as Andy Kaufman, of course, and he says, you know, he wants to talk with Jim. And he said, you know, Jim's not here. And he said, there's just a lot of bad things happening, especially Tony Clifton's behavior on set and all this stuff. And he said, I just don't know if we can continue. And so Jim, as Andy Kaufman says, well, you know, I know Jim. And Jim can do a very good impersonation of Andy Kaufman and Tony Clifton. But 
if Jim is doing it, then Andy's not going to be doing the performance, and it's just going to be this impression. And so Milos Forman goes, "No, I want I want Andy to do the performance." So at that point, the director accepts the crazy behavior because he thinks that it's going to make the, sh- the movie better. Um, and he said his quote. He said, um, "I guess I, I I just miss talking to Jim." Milos is, is foreign, by the way. Um, so. Yeah, so some other things that uh, Jim Carrey would do is he would go between characters sometimes, and he would be talking as Andy and then go into Tony, and people go, oh, no, not Tony, go away. Uh, Jim Carrey's driver said that he was almost always in character. He would wake up as Tony Clifton, and uh, as a matter of fact, of all the characters that he could be, most of the time he was Tony Clifton. And now guys, I think this is really important to bring up because when um, Jim Carrey was um, portraying uh, Tony Clifton, Tony Clifton's kind of an asshole and he insults people. But on the set, he would say a lot of really mean shit about Jim Carrey. And I think that at this time in his life, Jim Carrey is very, he felt very low and he used Tony Clifton as a way to really criticize himself. He was saying that Jim Carrey is a phony, he's a fraud. He uh, is a he's a coward. He he doesn't um, commit to anything. He's a, uh, um, an actor in the bad sense of the word. Um, things like that. So I think he used the character of Tony Clifton as a way to just kind of tell people how he felt about himself, get some demons out. I, I, I don't, John. How do you feel about that interpretation? I feel like that that makes a lot of sense. Um... I mean, we. I feel like we we could spend like s- several more hours talking about just like the psychology of Jim Carrey and where he's at because like he's gone through some phases in his life, man. Like especially now, like he's kind of like it, it's weird to watch the the Jim and Andy documentary because it's really like about so many different people but they're all Jim Carrey like it's Jim Carrey back when everything was filmed and even then he's playing like two other people and then now he's like so different than he was back then and he's like painting weird political cartoons of (laughs) Sarah Huckabee Sanders and (laughs) Trump and He's on like a weird anti-vaccination trip when he's with Jenny McCarthy. Like he's just all over the place. So we could we could spend just a while talking about the many faces of Jim Carrey. But I think part of it is right. He at this time in his life, uh, 1998, I think is when this is filmed that, you know, he's going through a lot of stuff like we've already talked about. You know, he's kind of hit his goal. He's at his this is his what's next period and i think it's you know hey i can be an asshole and it's not really me but i think maybe it's also like part of me thinks it's it's like a pushback on like him being really famous because when you're really famous like you kind of have to act in a different way and maybe this is him just like you know get in that wall that you kind of put between you and the public as a very famous person 
you know, getting away from that and just like treating everybody like how you really feel. And Tony Clifton really feels that everybody's garbage except him. Yeah. Well, this I this concept of identity crisis, um, this goes towards the end of the the, the film. So he re- filming wraps up. And by the way, the film, though, there's chaos on set and all that, like the film comes out pretty good. And at, at the end of filming, though, um, Jim Carrey has an identity crisis. He was in character for the like pretty much the entirety of the filming. So when the filming ended, he didn't really know who he was anymore. And he also had this fascination of this performance art. And although he never really paid for it too bad with his career, he had a few close calls. Um, at one point, he goes on Arsenio Hall and he's playing Jim Carrey, but like as a really obscene drunk. And this is during the L.A. riots. And he is yelling at Arsenio and at one point calls him a black bastard and then passes out and drops a wine bottle on the ground. And like it, that was a little bit tense. Um, and. So that just kind of shows you just kind of how a bit lost that he was. Now, by no means did this did he not do successful stuff after this. He did. He did um, Bruce Almighty. He did um, uh, the Kate Winslet. Um, uh, he does uh, Eternal Sunshine after this. He does um... Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber Two. 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 Uh, but he he does uh, Lemony Snicket, which is pretty um, well received. But uh, yes, man, that's a pretty good uh, later day. Um, so Carrie movie, me myself and Irene, I really like Gold uh, Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Gets him a Golden Globe nomination. Um, number twenty three, of course, which is definitely in my top ten favorite Jim Carrey <laughs> oh, that, movies. A big flop, John. Just stop that with all your critical. Uh, <laughs> but no, I love I love you, Philip Morris. Like Mr. Popper's Penguins. These could all go on the Mount Rushmore of Jim Carrey. Burt Wonderstone. Gotcha. Um, um, but wait, let me just kind of wrap up the actual Jim and Andy portion here because um, at the end of this documentary. Um, he's talking about his identity crisis and how he uh, goes into different characters, but he ends it off going talking about what identity is and that he sees kind of like the spirit of Andy floating through space and he cannot fit any sort of predetermined status and he then says really like bleakly and we kind of dark. He goes, I wonder what happened if I would have decided to be Jesus. And then that's the end of the documentary. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> which by the way, I just makes, makes me think of like how weirder or darker this portion of his life could be. Um, but before we continue, I want to throw it off to our sponsors. Um, so, um, this podcast today is brought to you by uh, Neville's Nipple Butter. Um, after a long day of hard work, um, aren't your nipples itchy? And when they're itchy, don't you scratch them? Well, if you scratch them, they could be bleeding. <laughs> Patrick, can't you relate to this? Absolutely not. You're a sick fuck. Oh, great, 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 great. So um, after you use this product, uh, 
your nips will be nice and supple. In fact, soft as a baby's bottom. Uh, um, and there's a reason for this, but a lot of people will ask, oh, are there any other uses for uh, Neville's nipple butter? Well, uh, John, have you ever scraped your knee or bumped your head? Uh, why, yes, I have. Well, that's too bad because uh, the nipple butter only works on the nips. Only on the nips. But I have to say, um, the secret to this product lies in its ingredients. It's made from vegetable oil. Um, it's made from salt. It's made from milk and chloric acid. So, um, Tyler, those, those sound like the ingredients of margarine. Oh, that's, that's because that's, that's what it is. It's made out of margarine. It's, it's, it's margarine. So for four easy payments of $17.99, you can get Neville's nipple butter. Neville's nipple butter. It's just margarine. So for 72 bucks, I can rub butter on my nipples? That's what I was saying. I mean, no. I can't believe you, these are on the show. Sign me up. So now I'm going to take this back to the pod here. Um, what we have here is now Seamless uh, segment. We talked about the Seamless. documentary. We talked about a number of different things, but um, two things I want to talk about a little bit here. Uh, one is performance art. Um, and another is method acting, but we already talked a bit about method acting. So, uh, John, can you get into a little bit about what performance art is and also some examples of performance artists, uh, performance artists today? Uh, I can, uh, performance art, it's kind of hard to nail down. Um, but, uh, according to the internet, uh, a performance, performance art is a performance um, so, you know, something that you're doing, uh, as opposed to a sculpture or a painting, um, that's just kind of hanging there. Um, so our performance presented within a fine art context, and this, these can be scripted or unscripted, random or carefully orchestrated, uh, planned or sp spontaneous and with or without audience participation. So it can really like be whatever you want it to be. What was that, Pat? I said it sounds a lot like uh, having a child. <laughs> it could be planned, it could be spontaneous, it could be with or without audience participation, which I heard increases the chance of it being a boy. <laughs> Pat, I didn't know if you were being funny there or extraordinarily deep, sometimes both. But um, yeah, performance art. Um, I, I kind of want John to delve in a little bit more here about some some current examples, but there, there are people who is basically it's blurring the lines like Andy Kaufman did is what is a performance and what is real and some well, well it's, it's, it's really of it but um, basically doing some sort of act that is not it's, it's unconventional performance art doing something more in a public setting and right it's it's really combining different things um, there's a painter um, from the 70s uh late 60s early 70s named alan capro and he would come up with these things called happenings um which i would say are different from your run-of-the-mill um let's freak out the squares that all hippies kind of did um in the 60s um they it was kind of a new art form that would allow artists um, you know, instead of just having paint or clay or whatever, you could experiment with body motion, recorded sounds, written uh, or spoken text, and even smells. So it's kind of 
expanding and fusing different things um, all together. Uh, another example of that would be um, in the late 60s in New York City, Andy Warhol um, would have things called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable, which would be um, uh, the Velvet Underground, which was a big band at the time, influential band, um, combined with his film projects and like weird lights. So it's all this combining of um, kind of different styles of art and audience participation uh, mixed together. Okay. Um, you, I, I like the, the context here of uh, some classic examples, but um, uh, you know, I want to get you to start getting more even Stevens on me because you know what I'm uh, oh, even Stevens. Up shy so, <laughs> so, so who would have thought way back in the day when, you, you know, we're all elementary school, maybe middle school watching the, the Disney channel. And, you know, that Lewis Stevens, he's getting up to some hijinks on Even Stevens. But who would have thought that, you know, a couple, few short years later, he'd be hanging out with Optimus Prime and doing weird-ass art shit on the side. Well, like, let's put, putting a bag a little bit. over his head. So, Say again. so what, we're, what we're dancing around is that Shia LaBeouf, um, there are a lot of performance artists nowadays, but... Shia LaBeouf is tremendously famous. So whenever he does a performance art piece, it gains, it gains large attention. So can you name some things that um, Shia LaBeouf has done that are performance um, art pieces? Well, uh, one of the most famous is probably, and uh, when I found these, they all have hashtags in front of them. So like that's their title. So the first is hashtag, I am not famous anymore. And that's when Shia LaBeouf, this is probably, I don't know, the one that I thought of the most. Um, he shows up to the uh, Berlin Film Festival where a film he's in called uh, Nymphomaniac uh, is premiering. And he has a paper bag over his head. He's in a full tuxedo like you'd see somebody at a festival or awards ceremony mm -hmm. uh, on. And he has a paper bag on his head that says, uh, I'm not famous anymore. And also at that uh, film festival, he um, was in a press conference and he quotes the, uh, I guess it was a French uh, soccer player named Eric Cantona, who said, when the seagulls followed the trawler, it is because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea, which I took to mean as uh, like paparazzi or vultures and celebrity news people are parasites just kind of looking for whatever they can get and then two days later he followed it up with hashtag I am sorry which was uh, a six day performance in an LA art gallery where he's wearing the same thing the bag and the tux and he's just standing there and crying silently and people would come in one at a time and just kind of hang out with him and talk to him and then he'd have a big table full of stuff and they'd uh, take an object off the table. So, uh, and the, sorry, I just want to put some context here. Because um, before the I'm Not Famous thing, he was in a Broadway play that was big time. Um, and it had uh, Alec Baldwin in it. Um, it had a couple other famous people in. And 
he was kicked out of this performance. He also abandoned the, the Transformers movies and he had had um, arrests for alcohol. So he's facing a bit, a bit of turmoil in his life. As a result, he did this, I'm not famous anymore, um, which of course wasn't true. Perhaps he's infamous instead of famous. But so anyways, he does this, I'm uh, sorry thing where he sits in a room and there's objects on a table and people can do whatever they want to him. And they know this and it's members of the public. It's not like chosen. And there were some, most people were just saying very nice things. They're fans of his. And they would just be like, we love you and support you. You know, um, you don't have to be sorry for anything. But there were some nefarious things that occurred. One in particular, John, can you go into that? Um, there was a point when, because um, he, he's supposed to just kind of like stand there, not really do anything. And a woman, uh, I believe it was, began to uh, kind of sexually assault him, take his pants off for whatever it was and then uh yeah, i mean wouldn't you <laughs> there was um he's he's kind of in a this art collective with two other guys a british author and a finnish artist and they kind of like saw what was going on and and came in uh, and and broke it up nobody likes an unfinished artist <laughs> and yeah. something that's weird about this is so Shia LaBeouf is committed as a performance artist and he said people could come in and he wouldn't move and he wouldn't do anything so a woman came in probably because Shia LaBeouf is a strong man he probably could have overpowered, uh, overpowered her but she came in and she started removing articles of his clothing and touching him in uh, a sexually inappropriate way and you know he admitted to this later and the media had no clue how to react to it because some people were saying that, you know, he's a victim and we need to treat him like any other victim, any female victim. And then there was a lot of, especially males that were not cool with Shia LaBeouf being seen as a victim here because he was doing some art piece and they felt like he was embellishing in some way or he could have stopped it, but didn't. And no one was in this, this tent or whatever that this took place. So um, yeah, there was a lot of weird feelings about this and, to be frank, I don't really know how, how I would react to that. I don't know, you know, if he's really a victim or if not. I mean, he was assaulted, but maybe he could have done something, but he was committing to the art. Like, it's really complicated. Can I ask a question that I think is on all of our minds? Was he aroused? I, all the literature I saw on the subject, Pat, did, they didn't specify that. Okay, because I would just imagine he'd be rigid hard during all of this, but that's I just imagine that Shia LaBeouf's always hard because he's just kind of a weird guy. Like, kind of cool. Like, I like a lot. American Honey is a great movie. I think he's great in Nymphomaniac. He's, uh... Well, that that one piece he did, I swear I'm not officer drunk. I think he he wouldn't have been hard there, but that's just strictly due to the whiskey. (laughs) Probably. Yeah, but he I mean, shower for Fury. He never showered for that in that tank movie that he was in the tank with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt said he smelled awful, um, and because like when you're in in war and you're in a tank, you don't shower. Um, and uh, but I mean, I feel like Shia can get a a bad rap. Like a lot of people don't like him, but I, I kind of do. Like this, a lot of this. I don't know, performance art stuff comes off as like kind of try hard and just like being weird to be weird. But 
um, uh, after the uh, the I'm sorry thing that he did, uh, they had uh, a plain skywrite hashtag start creating. And this was kind of like a bookend with another thing that Shia LaBeouf did on his own, which was hashtag stop creating um, after he was uh, accused. Uh, he had a short film and a couple comics that was accused uh, of plagiarism. So he did that in response to that. And he uh, apologized for the plagiarism allegations by uh, copying someone's apology that he found on Yahoo Answers. <laughs> so I just think that's kind of that's kind of funny to me. Like, and then uh, another one. I mean, like the hits just keep on coming. Like, then well, he had a thing talk called, about movie theater though. Um, his movies. That well, I was I was kind of I was going to kind of go in order because I I know we're trying to keep this short, but they're all like kind of interesting in their own way. Like. Uh, he jumps rope to find his inner self and invited people to come do it too. Not to find their inner selves, to find like Shia LaBeouf's inner self. Uh, they had a, a hashtag meta marathon, which was running laps around a museum in Amsterdam while people were talking about what it means to be meta. And uh, Tyler, what you're talking about, which was ha- hashtag follow my heart, which was at uh, South by Southwest where... Um, you could watch all of his movies with him. He watched them all in a row backwards. So the newest one first to the, his oldest one. And you could watch him watch his movies. Yeah, And he didn't leave. He left no. once or twice, but he didn't leave to sleep or anything like that. I think that's really cool. And I just want to go on record saying, you know, I know I'm, Threw a few jokes out there, busted his chops a little bit, but I do. I, I really like Shia LaBeouf. I think he's an incredible actor. I really admire his performance art stuff, and uh, I, I also admire his, um, you know, his willingness to publicly take on the issues that he's been dealing with, with with alcoholism and his trouble with the police. You know, a lot of times you see actors. Um, everybody gets in trouble, right? We all make mistakes. And a lot of times you see celebrities kind of hide then, right? They, they mess up and they go into a treatment program somewhere and they just go under the radar for, you know, however long it takes until they make some kind of resurgence. But I think Shia has, um, you know, really grabbed life by the horns there and, and used his brass set of balls to just take it on in front of the public and, and admit that he has some issues and deal with it publicly, which I think is, is brave and uh, is encouraging for anybody else who is going through, you know, hard times in their life. And which you, I, could, you could even make the point that like, is that some kind of like performance art performance art of like, I'm a public figure. Let's bring the pip, the public into my recovery process. And even, you know, relating with the common man, right? I mean, like I said, everybody gets in trouble. Everybody's got a vice of some kind. Everybody's got something that they wish that they didn't do. Right. And uh, he's just proven that he, he is too. He's just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would agree. You know, I really agree with it. I mean, he, first of all, he's Lewis Stevens, which was like one of my favorite characters growing up. And 
Like, I, I don't care if he goes off the deep end in the future. Like, I kind of always like Shia LaBeouf. But um, he also still isn't, like, out of the woods with his stuff. Like, I think within the past 12 months, he was arrested again for alcohol. Um, disorderly conduct of some sort. So, um, I think it's really interesting to see where he goes from here. He's, he's playing um, a movie coming out um, as John Pesel, which I'm sure he's going to be great in. And... Uh, if he's making movies, I'm still going to be watching them. So, um, yeah, I mean, to me, he's fascinating. But just another page in that book is: isn't he supposed to play his his own drunk dad in a movie? <laughs> oh yeah! All right, to take it another level. I mean, the, the whole this whole conversation is just kind of meta, as far as like talking about. Jim Carrey being Andy Kaufman and one thing that we I don't want to sidetrack us too much from like the performance art thing but that I think kind of fed into Jim Carrey's whole thing of believing that he was Andy Kaufman was there's so many people in Man on the Moon that were around Andy Kaufman like people that were on taxi or portraying themselves in that movie and like David Letterman and Jerry Lawler portraying themselves and Lynn Bargley or whatever her name is, his partner, his girlfriend. I mean, she was there. (laughs) Right. Courtney Love was who uh, Andy Kaufman was. Yeah, but wasn't Lynn there, like, on on set? She directed the documentary. I thought you meant, like, I was was talking about, like, people portraying themselves in the fictional movies. See, we can't even fucking talk about this. But um, actually his brother, uh, um, Andy's brother, portrayed Andy's dad. So there's another thing there. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that you're kind of bringing this full circle because we're getting up uh, close to an hour here. And I want to uh, kind of wrap up at the hour point. But do you guys just kind of want to um, do some final thoughts and kind of Jim and Andy, the doc, or Jim Carrey's career or performance are, you know, Shia LaBeouf, just kind of like what your, your feelings are uh, about what we talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, Jim and Andy is an incredible documentary. I think everyone should watch it. Man on the Moon is an incredible film. Um, I think everybody should watch it. It is, uh, you know, one of um, our lifetime's greatest actors portraying the life of, uh, you know, one of the greatest entertainers, in my opinion, of all time. Uh, and he does so to just an incredible extent. And like we talked about, you know, he really lived that life. But I think it's also important for people to consider uh, the mental health of these actors and the stress and strain that they go through. I know we talked about the identity crisis that um, Jim had, uh, you know, after that show and, and trying to figure out who he was. But I think this is something that a lot of actors who go through method acting deal with, and you have to, you know, you have to stop and think, Uh, you know, after living as someone else for so long and, and truly living as that person, you know, responding to that name, who do you become afterwards? And, um, you know, just think about the extent of, of mental health and mental strain that these individuals put themselves through solely for our entertainment. So just something to consider the next time you're sitting at the movies and you think, wow, that was, that was damn good. Um, 
you know, think about what they had to go through in order to make it damn good and for you to have that sort of reaction. John, want to piggyback? Um, yeah. Uh, I really uh, love Man on the Moon. It's probably, it's in my top three uh, Jim Carrey movies with Liar Liar uh, and, of course, the number 23. Um, Critical Dungeon. That's right. I always I always listen to the critics. Um and I I don't know. I feel like on the one hand you could look at Jim Carrey is really just taking his problems out on everybody else and by being Tony Clifton. Um but I think it's really cool to kind of take that wall away from what's the movie what's not the movie what's the show what's not the show um when the fiction meets the real kind of thing and that's where jim and andy comes together um for me it's and that's like kind of what all performance art is it's blurring the lines between art and reality and getting you out of your comfort zone um, to something else and kind of questioning things. And I can say at the very least that uh, Jim Carrey's onset antics have made us question things. And it got, I think it got a great performance. And he was robbed not once, but twice for Oscar nominations. This and Truman Show, so... Reality is just a hologram, John. Remember that. That's right. It's it's all a projection. We're in the Matrix. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, um, I just want to thank you two for letting me kind of quarterback on this one a bit. Um, Obviously, I was really uh, fascinated by uh, the documentary, and uh, I love the movie Man on the Moon. Um, And I, as a guy who I've dabbled in acting in the past and dabbled in stand-up, um, this kind of source material just really intrigues me. And um, I think that uh, you guys brought a lot of good opinions and stuff today. Um, but other than that, I just recommend uh, that people watch um, Man on the Moon first and then watch Jim and Andy. Uh, they're not very long flicks, but they're very interesting explorations of a real person. And Jim and Andy is two real people. Um, but other than that, uh, Pat, do you want to take us on home? Yeah, uh, so I just want to say uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we're going to be putting together uh, some of the social media accounts here, too, uh, and a Gmail account. So we'd really appreciate any feedback that you guys have for us to help us improve the show going forward. Uh, we really value um, all of your um, you know, willingness to listen as we um, talk about the, the things that interest us the most. Um, so thank you very much to the audience. It's really you guys um, that that drive us to do this. And uh, we'll be back next week. So uh, tune in again for more Granny Talk. Got you there. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs>